where Brother James is today, and him and Renee are taking a little vacation time, uh, well-deserved, so uh, they're taking some time off today. Well, last week we started on a new series called The Power of a Question, and we talked about how powerful questions can be in answering our questions and getting information, and um, they can be very pointed when asked at a certain time in a certain place and a certain point where we are in our lives. And we talked about Jesus asked over 300 questions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels. And his questions were a part of how he taught. They were a part of his teaching. They were a part of a challenge in getting people to look deeper, deeper at an issue, deeper into their hearts and their souls and their minds about certain situations in our life. The questions he asked made his parables and his teachings come to life and they also made it very personal because as he was telling these stories you could relate to his stories but then he would ask a question that made you ask yourself something that again went deeper into your mind and your heart and your soul. Well last week we looked at what we think are the first questions we find in the gospels when Jesus was 12 years old and you remember um, Jesus asked his parents after they had been separated for a few days after the Passover feast and they realized they couldn't find Jesus and they finally found him in the temple talking with the religious leaders and asking questions and answering their questions. And then they were like, Jesus, where have you been? You have you not, do you not know that we've been worried sick about you? And Jesus said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I would... Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And it was one of those moments where it kind of took Mary back. Well, today I want us to look at a quartet or a set of four questions that come one, two, three, four, one right after the other that Jesus asked during his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. But before we look at those four questions right back to back to back to back like that, I want us to do a little background on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, most of you, I would guess, but I don't want to make any assumptions here, may or may not be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, but this was a sermon of Jesus' teachings or a series of teachings that Jesus taught on this mountainside that we find in Matthew's Gospel, his account, and it goes from chapter 5 and 6 and 7 all the way through, and it's this continual teaching, and it ta- starts with Jesus going up on the mountain, and then it ends at the end of chapter 7 with Jesus coming down the mountain. So we believe that was either one long sermon or a series of teachings that he taught in that particular place. And many of you probably uh, remember some of those same teachings you will hear again in Mark and Luke and John, but Matthew put them all and connected them all together in this mountainside event which is why they call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus starts, if you have read that, and I would encourage you, if you've not read that or haven't in a while, go back and read Matthew 5 through 7. There's a lot of great stuff there. But Jesus starts uh, that passage or that teaching or that sermon with what we know as the Beatitudes. And the first one reads like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And throughout Matthew's gospel, he talks about Jesus continually teaching about this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of heaven, how things are supposed to be in the kingdom of heaven, what God always intended. So seemingly Jesus introduced this teaching about the kingdom of heaven, letting his hearers know that if they really wanted to know what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, of God's kingdom of heaven, it starts with a poverty of spirit. There it goes back to that, blessed are the poor in spirit. An authentic humility that 
has one's mind and heart and soul open to what God wants to teach you, even if it goes against everything that I believe, even if it goes against everything that I've been taught and raised to believe, am I, do I have an open heart? Do I have this poverty of spirit to hear what God wants me to say? And leading up to our text today, you may remember if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, this is how Jesus starts. He takes different subjects and he starts like this. You have heard it said... But I say to you, so he'll tell them, this is what culture has said. This is what the law said. This is what the law and culture has made this original intent of God to be. But I tell you, I want to get you back on track on what God's original intent always was. So you have heard it said, but I tell you. And what they've heard in their culture versus what the original intent or the reality of the way it is to live in God's kingdom now, Jesus lays down this massive challenge very early in this sermon. And this is one that's got to be hard. If you're sitting there and you're listening, if you're part of that mountainside group and you're listening to what Jesus is saying and you hear him say this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that make anybody feel good about yourself? If you're sitting there, you're going, these are the religious elite. They are the ones that are closest to God. And you're saying, if it doesn't get better in my life than their, if my righteousness isn't better than theirs, then I'm not going to make it in the kingdom of heaven. I'm ready to walk out of that sermon right there. Because I feel defeated. But for some reason, it, Matthew doesn't tell us that the crowds left. No, they still listened. That's really raising the bar, isn't it? It would be like today, maybe Jesus saying, if he were to say to us, he might say, unless your righteousness surpasses that of Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, then you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you feel defeated? I do. I'm like, how will I ever get to that level of someone like that? I'm out. How can I possibly surpass that kind of righteousness, Lord? But the hint is going back all the way to the beginning of the sermon. This poverty of spirit. If you feel like you can't get there, if you feel like you don't have that kind of righteousness, then Jesus is saying that's exactly where you need to be to hear what God wants to say to you. If you think you've got it all figured out as part of the religiousness of your day and your culture, then you're not going to learn anything else. Your heart's not open. Your mind's not open. You're not open emotionally because you think you already are righteous. But if you have that poverty of spirit, then you're going to listen and your heart and your mind's going to be open. But as Jesus moved through this sermon, he seems to let his listeners know that there's two groups. There's two groups that are opposed to the gospel and that are opposed to this kingdom way of doing things that he's teaching about. And the first one is the world, the pagan world, and they're, they're opposed to this. But then Jesus also hints at several times, it's not only the world that's against the kingdom of God and the gospel, it's also the religious establishment. They're against it as well. They don't really like what I'm teaching because we're messing up their established way of doing things. But let's read our text today and, and let's see what Jesus is saying in this particular teaching. And we're going to look at chapter... I know in your bulletin it says chapter 7 and you're going, there's not a verse 43 in chapter 7. I blew that one and I gave it wrong to the secretary so it's not her fault. It's actually chapter 5 verses 43 through 48. So that's where we're going to be today. So if you were at 7, I apologize. That's my bad on that one. All right, this is what he says, and hopefully we'll have it up on the screen. Thank you. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Question number one. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Question number two. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Question number three. Do not even pagans do that? Question number four. And then he hits us again right in the gut with this huge raising of the bar. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you're going, ah, how do we do that? So Jesus starts this subject as he has the others. You've heard it said, a reference form from the original law of Moses, I believe he's hinting at some of the original laws of Moses, and most of his hearers would know that. They've heard the law of Moses backwards and forwards throughout their whole lifetime, so they're familiar with the law of Moses. So Jesus seems to be referring to Leviticus 19.18, and this is what it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That seems to be what he's referring to. But it's become love your neighbor. And he he leaves out as yourself. And hate your enemy. He seems to say this is what it's come. From what God the Father originally gave to Moses. It has come from that to this. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then he tells you. But I tell you. A completely different way. I tell you. And Jesus, uh, um, as he has with many of disciples, raises his bar to this almost seems unrealistic and unattainable. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But he says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Notice that you will be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. You will be the son and the daughter that God always created you to be. That he wanted you to be. Otherwise... I don't want you just to be a conformist of the culture. Yeah, everybody can love your neighbor. That's easy to do. Just be a conformist of the religious community. Yeah, we love everybody. But how do our actions really show that? And notice he emphasizes as God the creator and God's creation is available to all. And he says, look, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. It all rains on there, all God's children, if you really think about it. And he also, that is part of the Old Testament and New Testament as well, that God created and loves everyone. Yes, he had a chosen people who were supposed to reflect what relationship with God was supposed to be like. But they have kind of fallen down on that. And it became self-absorbed. But then come these four questions. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Anybody can do that. Are not even tax collectors doing that? Now, the reason I believe he mentions tax collectors is we're talking about enemies here. Love your neighbors, hate your enemies. Well, we hate tax collectors because they are in cahoots with Rome. Rome taxes us unreasonably. We're under their thumb, and because we're under their thumb, and then these people that are our own people are are working for them, and they know they're cheating us, but there's nothing we can do. Those are our enemies, so he specifically mentions them. But even they do that. The people, all the other tax collectors, um, they're friendly to each other. They love those because they are alike. What are you doing more than that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Everybody can do that. We can be nice to those who are like us. You like the same team I do? Okay, then we can talk about it. If you're miserable today, 
because your team lost. Well, I want to be miserable with you because we like the same team. We're glad when our team wins. You like the same politician I do? Well, then we can talk and we can be friends and neighbors and I can be with them. Oh, but don't you go going to the other side because then we might become enemies. We know how that works pretty fast, don't we? Do not even pagans do that. And when Jesus is referring to pagans, I believe he's referring to anybody that doesn't know God, that doesn't practice the law, those who are Gentiles, anybody outside of the Jewish family, tax collectors and pagans and Gentiles, who, by the way, you consider your enemies, they act just the same as you do. You're no better than them, really, in the way you behave. So God's kingdom is not about doing is about doing more than others in the culture. He says, what are you doing more? He's saying there's got to be something we do more. It's not talking more. It's not arguing more. It's not standing up for more things that are righteous. It's not knowing more things that are righteous. But he says it is doing more. He wants to see action. And he says you want to do more and experience God's kingdoms, then love your neighbor. Yes, but more means love your enemy and pray for them. Why is your enemy your enemy, I think Jesus is asking them. Is it simply because they are different? Is it because they have a different worldview than you do? Is it because they have literally hurt you in some way? And a lot of times someone who hurts us can be our neighbor, can it? It can be one that's closest. It can be our spouse. It can be our child. It can be our parent. It can be our best friend can hurt us, and they can all of a sudden become our enemy. Whatever the case, love them. Agape is the Greek word that Jesus uses here. And you all have heard, and probably there's lots of, there was several different words for love um, in the New Testament, in the original language. But Jesus uses the word agape here. Love your neighbor. Not phileo love is this emotional brotherly love that we have for someone we're close to. That's a strong love, but it's an emotional love, and it's one that seems to be easy because they're my, that's my brother, that's my friend. Not storge love, that emotional type family love. Well, you're my mom or dad, of course I love you. You're my brother, you're my sister, you're my blood, of course I love you. That's a strong love, but again, it's not the love he's talking about. Not eros love, the erotic type of love for a, uh, two that are married together, lovers. That's a strong love, but Jesus said, this is not what I'm talking about. He says, I'm talking about agape, action that requires more than just a feeling. It requires the mind and the will to go deep and show true action. It's hard, and you will have to pray for them because this is not easy or natural. You see, when you think about it, if we return good for evil, we think, what is that? What is wrong with somebody that would do that? That's demonic. But when we return good for good, well, that's just human, Jesus says. All humans do that, whether they're pagans or they believe in God. Everybody does that. What is that? You're not doing anything more. But when you return evil with good, that's being like Jesus. That's being divine. So today, Jesus is asking me, and he's asking you some of these same questions. He's saying, Craig, if you love all the people that love you, is that all you got? That's easy. Y'all are good to me. You love me, and I appreciate that. It's easy to love you back. What am I doing that's really difficult in that? Craig, don't the people that don't even know who Jesus is or what the Sermon or the Mount is never even heard of that and are probably still in bed right now? Don't they do that? 
Aren't they going to get up at about 11 and go get brunch and watch the warm-ups for the NFL today? Don't they do the same thing? Aren't they going to get together with people that love them and talk about sports and watch the game and tailgate and do all that together? Yes, they're going to do that. So how are you different than them? Craig, if you only spend time with and on the people that are part of Southwest, is that all you got? Taking care of the people that are good to you and go, hey, good sermon, preacher. Like your jacket this morning. Is that all you got? Craig, even atheists and agnostics hang out with their own and have community, don't they? So how are we different? Now, if Jesus were talking to you, and I believe he is because he's talking to all of us, even through these gospels so many years later, what specific questions would he ask you today about how you treat others, about concerning your enemies? What has made someone your enemy? Think about that for a minute. And you may say today, I don't have any enemies. I'm good with everybody. And God bless you if that's the case. That's good. But are you willing to do something more than the rest of the culture who simply separates ourselves from our enemies and hates them? And that's what our culture does still today, don't we? You just stay away from those people. Separate it. Get with all the people that agree and talk like you do, and we'll, we'll hate all those other people, and hopefully they'll just go away. Because that makes relationships a lot better, doesn't it? But that's how we operate. Well, a little over a year ago, many of you heard this story in the news. An off-duty police officer in Dallas, Texas, Amber Geiger, walks into an apartment she thinks is hers. And she sees that the door is ajar. A lot of y'all know this story. And she's wondering why her apartment door is unlocked when she's not there. And she opens up the door and she sees the silhouette of someone sitting in her apartment. And supposedly she yells something at them and there's simply a man sitting in a t-shirt and shorts eating a bowl of ice cream unarmed. And she shoots him. And then she realizes it's not her apartment. And it was a guy in his own apartment. Now, there was a lot of, you know, reasons why she thought, I mean, the way this apartment complex was set up, there's different levels, and they're all pretty much the same, and you park on your level, and you walk in. He's like, how does somebody walk in? But she had been on duty for a long time. She was tired. But we also know that she was texting back and forth, while obviously while she was driving home and not paying attention, and she got off on the wrong floor. At least that's the story. Well, as probably a lot of y'all heard, she was eventually, through this whole year's worth of investigations and, and trials, um, she kills this outstanding young man. And his name was Botham John. He was 26 years old. He was a son. He was a brother. An outstanding young man, very involved in his church. An outstanding worker, a great citizen. All these years of dreams... And life ahead of him, and now he was sensely killed because of a mistaken identity and, and obviously improper use of, of force. But ultimately, you know, after this investigation, he goes on trial, and what happens? Well, she gets convicted of murder, and it's, it's very controversial. There's, there's protest, and it's the, the black-on-white thing, as we hear, keeps coming up again and again. And, and we understand this. We see this, and it's just an... A bad feeling all the way around. But some of you may have seen this already, but Botham John's younger brother, Brant, but not only 
does he do something with his emotions and with his words, but he does something with his actions at the trial. So if we could show that clip right now. Many of y'all have probably seen this, but this is worth looking at again. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Hi everyone, George. No, George wasn't supposed to be part of it. I don't know how many of y'all saw that, but that's that's really hard to believe, isn't it? My daughter was talking about a class she has at school where they talk about these issues like this, and as we were talking about that, you know, we want to just we hate you. You killed my brother. And that young man, there was no hatred there. He had this compassion that has got to be from Christ and the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? That was able to say, I'm not just going to say or whatever. I want to do something. He could have just said what he said. 
there, but he says, I want her to know, I want to physically give her a hug and let her know, this is awful. I mean, her life, y'all, is really messed up now, isn't it? But do you know what that meant to her? She can hear all the things about God and Jesus that she wants to hear, but when someone does like something like that, because I'll be honest, if you followed this, there were some people in his family, there were some people from their church that were absolutely on that enemy hatred wagon. Absolutely. Now, I'm all about bringing justice, but this kid had the love of Christ in him. This young man may have, I believe he allowed Christ and the Holy Spirit to do something in him to answer the question, how can I show love to this woman who killed my brother that the whole world and even some of my church and family are saying I should hate and make her an enemy? How do I show something of love to her? I think she got the message, don't y'all? Now, you also may know that the judge hugged the family members and gave a Bible to Amber Geiger, which she was reprimanded for. You can't do that. And that's what's happened in our culture. We need to be emotional, not do anything. We just need to bring about justice, throw them in jail, throw away the key, and that's it. They're an enemy. They're a bad person. That's it. Let's not try to reform them. But all over the world, everybody will know that young man, Brant John, says he's a follower of Christ, and his actions show that he truly is. That hug said a lot to Amber Geiger, didn't it? And to the world, a hug was a lot more. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. What more are you doing? Well, following Jesus requires incredible courage, doesn't it? And that young man showed it. And there's going to be times in my life and in your life that we're going to be called upon to show that kind of incredible courage. And I hope that we'll be able to do more than just say the right thing or believe the right thing or feel the right thing. But we will actually have courage to do the right thing. So this morning, we offer uh, an invitation. Maybe there's somebody here today that wants to name Christ as their Lord and Savior and start that path. Jesus doesn't raise, he doesn't lower the bar from what he raised it. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He expects us to always have that goal in mind. But the difference is, is that Jesus, when we failed like Amber Geiger in our lives... He did more than just go, well, I guess you're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. No, Jesus made a way for us all to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because of our deeds, but because of what he did more for the whole entire world. That's amazing love, isn't it? That's incredible love. And that's the kind of love that he calls us to. So this morning we're going to stand. Mike's going to lead us in a song. And if you have a decision this morning to become a Christian or join this group of believers, we invite you to make that as we stand and sing together.